0: This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.
1: This is Larry Lessig. This is another episode of the podcast Another Way. This is a little different this episode. We're going to play an event which we Equal Citizens held with co-sponsorship of a million other organizations, but a conversation between two incredibly important activists and scholars about voting rights and HR1 and HR4. Carol Anderson, who is an extraordinary author whose recent works have focused us very profoundly on the techniques, the tricks some not so obvious, some completely obvious, that have been deployed across the country, but mainly in the South, to suppress the opportunity of African Americans to participate in the elections. And Guy Charles, who's a professor of law at Duke and who is moving, I'm so happy, to report to Harvard uh, next year um, uh, and ha- who has been involved in many Context of constitutional law, but most recently in the question of voting rights. And this conversation, which we held over a uh, Facebook Live and Zoom events with hundreds of people participating and now listened to by more than 40,000 people, tries to bring out what's at stake and what's really uh, important about the choice between HR 1 and HR 4. And just to give you a clue, Both of these bills need to be passed urgently. But the argument that is clear in this discussion is that the threats from the Supreme Court are more pronounced with H.R. 4 than with H.R. 1. And that's a strategic reason to make sure that if we get anything, let's make sure we get the thing that the Supreme Court is not going to strike down. Okay, so... There are two kinds of people in the world. There are people who think that what happened was the best of all possible things. And then there are people who are constantly doubting everything that they do. So Scalia, for whom I clerked, was of the former type. He was bizarre in his celebration of every decision he ever made, including really minor decisions. Once I, after I clerked for him, I uh, accompanied him um, on a trip to Russia um, to meet with Russian officials. And, and you know, every decision we made, uh, like where we would have lunch or what time we would meet to go out to dinner or whether we went to one museum or another museum, every decision was the best possible decision. And I remember thinking it must be so wonderful to be Nino Scalia because life is perfect. There's never any doubt Because, and I find myself exactly the opposite. Everything I do, I think forever about how I could have done it better, including these podcasts. I think about this all the time. It just torments me. But in this conversation tonight, uh, but in this conversation that you'll hear, uh, there's one thing that after it was finished, I was really, really sad that we didn't get to talk more about. And I'm just going to give you two minutes about it now so that I can sleep a little bit better tonight. And that's this. There's no doubt, really no doubt, that many of the laws that are now being considered across the country to make it harder for people to vote are motivated uh, by race. There's no doubt. Uh, We know that because we know people involved. We know what they talk about. We know what they talk about when nobody is supposed to be listening. But there's a really important question that we need to ask in the reform community about whether that is the exclusive focus of our concerns about voting rights or whether we should think about it more broadly. Because what we know about America is that discussion of race triggers automatic reactions on both sides. Uh, On what I think of as our side, the side that still believes we still have a fight to achieve racial equality in America, talks about race trigger an automatic affirmation. Yes, of course, it must be race involved in the particular decision that's being discussed. But on the other side, there's an automatic defensive reaction. Raise the question of race and immediately The other side says, no, 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 no. It has nothing to do with race. It's X, Y, and Z. It's not race. People are not racists. And that debate, that struggle, that feature bug of American psyche today is with us and is not movable right now, however much each side wishes it could move that debate. There's another way to understand what these laws that are being considered across the country to suppress the vote or make it harder to vote, are really about. They may be about race, I believe they're about race, but they're certainly about politics. There's certainly a partisan effort to make it harder for Democrats to vote. And that partisan effort is explained openly, defended openly by Republicans. In the Supreme Court, the lawyer for the Republican National Committee openly admitted that. If it's easier for for voters to vote, that puts Republicans at a competitive disadvantage, quote unquote. And so in understanding these laws as laws motivated by a partisan interest, we both recognize something nobody could deny and we connect with something that I think both sides in this debate, Republican and Democrat, Agree upon. Because who is going to defend, really? Who is going to defend the idea that state officials use their power to rig the system against their partisan opponents? Who's going to defend partisanship in the way we allocate the right? To vote. I know that the insiders. I know Mitch McConnell. I know all of the people in politics who actually are trying to maintain power. They'll defend it if, if not openly, then at least to themselves. But I'm talking about ordinary voters, ordinary voters, ordinary people who defends the idea that the incumbent party should be allowed to rig the system to make it harder for them to be defeated, because that's what's happening right now. In all of these states, considering these election bills with changes that are plainly going to make it harder for Democrats to participate, the motivation is a partisan motivation to make it harder for Democrats to vote. Okay, now, the fact is that doesn't make these laws unconstitutional. Turns out our Constitution doesn't ban partisan activity, even activity intentionally making it harder for one side to vote. It's kind of striking and crazy, but that's the reality. So I'm not saying that that makes these laws unconstitutional. But what it does is give Congress a completely legitimate constitutional basis under the original constitution— not the amendments, the 14th and 15th Amendments, but under the original Constitution, to step in and override these partisan laws under the power the Constitution expressly gives Congress. And the reason that's important is when we imagine H.R. 1 or H.R. 4 being enacted and we imagine the inevitable lawsuit that challenges them, And we recognize, as you'll hear Guy Charles describe, that the Supreme Court is gunning to strike down laws like H.R. 4, which are directly grounded in race-based discrimination. It's going to be harder for them to strike down laws that are justified as responding to partisan discrimination. It's gonna be harder for them, given the decisions that they've issued across the course of American history, to say that Congress doesn't have the power to address partisan bias built into state election systems. I'm not saying the court couldn't do it, it's the Supreme Court, and they can do what they want. But the point is, it would require changing an enormous amount of settled law to say that somehow Congress doesn't have the power under a clause which expressly gives them the power to override state laws, for whatever reason they want, to override state laws targeted against the party that is not in power in that state. And so the question I think we need to ask when we think about these voter uh, reform measures is not just, are these measures responding to racism? Because I think they are. I think there is racism in these laws that are being enacted to make it harder to vote. But as well as that, are they being enacted for partisan purposes? And that's a kind of Homer Simpson, duh, moment. Of course they are. Of course they are. And if they are, does Congress have an unfettered power to override them at least with respect to congressional elections. And the answer to that question, at least on the basis of everything the Supreme Court has said so far, the answer to that question is plainly yes. Hell yes. And I think that if we can get people to recognize the basic fairness in a system that secures an equal freedom to vote to everybody, regardless of party or race or sex, then people will see the electoral system as a system that's actually producing representative democracy. Okay, that's the editorial leading into this conversation. It was an extraordinary night and extraordinary conversation, so please stay tuned for the event. So hello, welcome to this extraordinary event. I'm so honored to be able to host. My name is Larry Lessig. We're grateful you are here. And we're even more grateful to the extraordinary organizations that made sure you were here. Those include Common Cause, Represent Us, Incidents United, ACLU of Massachusetts, and Open Democracy. And I personally am extremely grateful to my team at Equal Citizens Adam Eichin and Kate Travis and Kevin Rissmiller, who have produced an extraordinary sub stack you can sign up for on our website um, to keep you up to date on the progress of HR1 and its related HR4. Um, so we're gonna have uh, an incredible conversation with two extraordinary scholars who I'm so happy to be able to introduce to you. But before we get going, um, we have a surprise uh, um, from uh, one of my newest heroes in Congress. Um, Mondaire Jones from the 17th District in New York, just elected this year at the, or last year at the age of 33, wanted to be here and could be here virtually as we all are. So let's see a short video from
2: Mondaire thank you to Professor Lessig and Equal Citizens for bringing us together today, and to Professors Anderson and Charles for your scholarship and your advocacy. It's not lost on me that multiple members of my staff have studied under at least one of you. It speaks to the impact you've made on the debate around our democracy. Most importantly, thanks to all of you joining us this evening for building the movement for HR1, the For the People Act. Thanks to you, the House has passed the most significant set of improvements to our democracy since the Voting Rights Act of 1965, and this victory is yours. Tonight, I want to talk to you about why it's so important that we see this victory through in the Senate, that we send the For the People Act to President Biden's desk uncompromised. Our democracy faces a crossroads. Throughout the country, state officials are staging a hostile takeover, of our democracy, a massive assault on voting rights designed to make voting as hard as possible. These officials, the party to which they belong, and the donor class that writes them big checks cannot win on the merits of their policy ideas. So they seek instead to disenfranchise large swaths of the American electorate. One major party in this country competes by seeking people's votes. The other party competes by suppressing people's votes. One party competes by amplifying the voices of the American people, of working people. And the other party competes by drowning those voices out. Yet, as a member of the most diverse Congress in American history, I know that we are closer to creating an inclusive, equitable democracy than ever before. To do so, however. We have to build a political process that empowers working people, people of color, women, and everyone else our politics has long excluded. I'm talking about a true democracy. The For the People Act helps build the true democracy we have never had, but have always deserved. This legislation would strip bad actors of the tools they need to keep the people from the polls through policies like automatic voter registration, a ban on voter purges, and expanded early voting and voting by mail, the For the People Act helps to ensure that the right to vote is no longer up for debate. But to build a true democracy, we also need to make sure that our politicians listen to us, to we the people, not just their biggest donors or their primary voters. We need to reduce the power of big money and our politics and end partisan gerrymandering. Let me start where our broken campaign finance system forces campaigns to start the money. Our campaign finance system gives the wealthy a megaphone and silences the rest of us. In 2016, just 400 mega donors contributed a total of $1.5 billion, more than every small dollar combined. Congress isn't just funded by wealthy people, it's full of them. More than 50% of lawmakers in the 116th Congress had a net worth of over $1 million compared to just 3% of the American population. Instead of a Congress, we have a country club. And this is no accident. It is our broken campaign finance system that has rigged our democracy such that it favors wealthy candidates. I experienced firsthand in my own run for Congress how important it is that we fix our broken campaign finance system. When I was running for office, the first question insiders asked me wasn't what I would be fighting for, whether my community was behind me, but rather how much money I could raise. My leading primary competitor never had to answer that question. As the son of a pharmaceutical billionaire, he didn't have to raise any money at all. Instead, he spent $5.4 million of his inherited wealth to blanket the airwaves with TV commercials three months out from the primary election. In the general election, I faced yet another self-funding candidate who outspent me by pumping $1.5 million into his campaign. Against these long odds, I was elected to the United States Congress. As an openly gay Black working class candidate whose community sent him to Congress, I am an exception, but I should not be. And with the small dollar matching system in HR1, candidates like me could become the norm. It is just as essential that HR1 ends the scourge of partisan gerrymandering once and for all. Partisan gerrymandering writes Republicans a blank check to pursue the unpopular policies their most powerful donors and their most radical supporters demand. Voters be damned. Only by ending partisan gerrymandering can we create a Congress that actually speaks for the American people. And only by ending partisan gerrymandering can we halt the radicalization of the Republican Party. Ending partisan gerrymandering is also essential to empowering communities of color. As long as partisan gerrymandering is possible, a declining white minority will wield it to deny communities of color the representation they deserve. Hacking them into safe districts to waste their votes or spreading them out to diffuse their power. By putting redistricting in the hands of independent commissions, we can ensure that the people choose the politicians, not the other way around. No longer would QAnon conspiracy theorists be guaranteed victory in general election contests simply because they've won their primaries. Imagine that. Since the Supreme Court struck down the heart of the Voting Rights Act in Shelby County v. Holder in 2013, we have promised that when we had the chance, we would rebuild our democracy. I'm talking about Democrats now. It has been a long time coming, but today we are here. It's time. If the Senate fails to follow through, if we compromise with corruption, systemic racism, and minority rule, we risk confirming many Americans' belief that billionaires and corporations have captured both parties, that minority rule has captured our states and that our elections offer no real choices. If we do not abolish the Jim Crow filibuster to save our democracy, the party of the new Jim Crow will abolish our democracy. So let's fight for all of HR1, now Senate 1, like our democracy depends on it because it does. Thank you.
1: Wow, I hadn't had a chance to see that. That was really great. Um, so he's not here, but let's pretend he's here. Thank you, Mondaire, um, and um, thank you for your leadership. Um, so the way this evening is going to flow, um, I'm going to invite um, uh, uh, Guy Charles, uh, Professor Guy Charles and Professor Carol Anderson to turn on their videos. I promise they're there. I've spoken to them um, and welcome them uh, to this webinar. Um, I'm gonna introduce both of them extremely briefly, and then we're gonna lay out a little bit of the context and what's at stake. Um, And then if you uh, wanna post questions in the Q&A, our um, moderator uh, of the moderator, uh, Adam Ayshin, is gonna pull the questions together and, and I will see them and we'll take as much time as we can to answer the questions as well. So I'm first extremely happy and honored to introduce Carol Anderson, who is the Charles Howard Chandler Professor of African-American Studies at Emory University. Her work focuses on public policy, particularly the ways that domestic and international policy intersect through the issues of race, justice, and equality in the United States. She's the author of many books and the two most recent, One Person No Vote and White Rage, perfectly frame the discussion of this evening. And I urge everyone, if you've not read these two books, um, well, after seeing Carol tonight, you will certainly want to get them and give them as presents, I'm sure, for for birthdays and and, uh, holidays as well. And then I'm so happy to welcome uh, my friend, Guy Charles who right now is the Edward and Ellen Schwartzman Professor of Law at Duke, although we're gonna fix that because he's gonna join the Harvard Law School as um, my colleague next uh, year. His work covers constitutional law, election law, campaign finance, redistricting, politics, and race. He's the co-author of two important case books, currently working on an extraordinary new book about the future of voting rights. Um, So Guy and Carol, thank you so much for being here. Um, so we're going to start with Guy, um, Guy, you know, we don't know who's here. There are a lot of people here and maybe most of them know this, but we want to make sure we're all at the same place. Help us understand the context of this fight by talking first a little bit about what the Voting Rights Act of 1965 tried to give us.
0: Thank you, Larry. So we have to start with a puzzle and the puzzle is In 1870, we ratified and passed the 15th Amendment. Um, But from the end of Reconstruction until 1965, notwithstanding um, this fundamental constitutional change, we still had um, racial discrimination and voting, particularly in the South, um, that um, really entrenched itself and the politics and culture of um, many Southern states, although not just in the Southern states. So the question, the puzzle is, how can it be that um, we have a constitutional amendment and yet have such entrenched racial discrimination? Um, and so the, ans- and, and the answers to that puzzle, I think, also set stage not just for the Voting Rights Act of 1965, but really for where we are today, thinking about HR one as well as HR four. And so there are three particular things, and I'll run over them fairly quickly. The first thing to note is that our constitution, unlike most modern constitutions, do not contain an affirmative right to vote. And I'll talk a little bit later about why that's significant. The second point is that our constitution also delegates to the states the responsibility for voting administration, as well as voter qualifications. Um, The third point is that our constitution takes an approach to voting that is a negative rights approach. So the Constitution says, "Look, you can't deny the right to vote on the basis of these limited characteristics such as uh, race or gender." Race after. Um, the 15th Amendment and 14th Amendment, gender after the 19th, poll tax, or if you're all over 18. And then finally, there's an ideological divide as to whether voting is a right or whether it's a privilege. Notice that one of the terms that people use for voting, they call it the franchise, right? Sort of the idea that this is something the government gives to you that you're not entitled to. It's a franchise, it's not a right, right? And so what then that means is that as long as states after Reconstruction, can th- they had the responsibility, they had the primary responsibility, as long as they did not directly pass laws that said that, hey, we're discriminating on the basis of race, they can impose whatever qualifications that they want. And they did. So they said, look, you have to be literate. And even when the Supreme Court passed upon a literacy test, the court said, look, yeah, it makes sense for people to be literate. We don't wanna be ruled by by the ignorant, Um, right? You have to be literate, you have to pay a a tax a poll tax. Um, So you had a number of different ways that the states could use, especially in the South, to disenfranchise Black voters by passing laws that they knew were going to have an impact, like literacy tests, um, so vote denial laws, the poll taxes, understanding tests, and then they could grandfather white voters into the process. They also engage in voter suppression, Um, They also engage in vote dilution through racial gerrymandering mechanisms and voter suppression through violence um, and fraud, right? So the constitution imposed um, few limitations on the discretions of the states in terms of what they can do. And many states in the South, Mississippi, North Carolina, Georgia, South Carolina, we can go on, use those discretion as a mechanism of um, discriminating against voters of color. And it wasn't until 1965 through the Voting Rights Act that then we were able to stop some of those things. So that's the the framework, that's the setup, that's the justification. And the mechanisms were the discretion of the states through literacy tests, poll taxes, gerrymandering, violence, fraud, all of these mechanisms that they could use at their discretion to discriminate against voters of color, specifically black voters.
1: Okay, so um, I'm sure there were some in 1965 who imagined they'd solve the problem of vote suppression, racial discrimination with voting. Um, but you know, it turns out they didn't, um, or at least it turns out that there were a lot of clever techniques that got deployed in the period since. And Carol's work has been extraordinary in detailing in really vivid and extraordinarily moving and depressing detail, the, um, the techniques. And we can think about them really in three periods. One is 1965 to Shelby County, the case that uh, Mondaire talked about where the Supreme Court gutted an extremely important part of the Voting Rights Act. And then Shelby County to 2020. But, you know, 2020 has inspired all sorts of new games in your own state of Georgia, Carol. So I just wonder if you want to make sure that we all understand just what creativity there is out there for denying people the freedom to vote.
3: Absolutely. Thank you so much. Um, Mississippi, Mississippi, um, right shortly after the Voting Rights Act, decided that it was going to tweak its laws in a way. One was to turn elected officials into appointed officials. So much of this is how do we remove the power of the electorate from having any say in the way that government works? If we understand that that's the baseline there, And so to make, and one of these officials was a school superintendent. So this is Mississippi trying to fight Brown and they don't want black folks voting for a school superintendent. So they're going to make that person now an appointed position. Um, Another one was to change districts so that voting used to be in districts. And now to make them at large, and that was a way to dilute the Black vote, because now you had, instead of these nice, tightly bounded districts where you had lots of Black folks who had previously been disenfranchised, um, now that they could vote, um, being able to cast that ballot for the person who was going to be the commissioner in their district meant that you were going to get some Black commissioners. So to dilute that, to make these at large, all of a sudden, just, just, Dissipated the power of that black vote among a sea of white voters. Um, One of the other things that they did is that you had the use of the criminal justice system as a way to criminalize and terrify black folks from using absentee ballots. We saw this in the 1980s in Alabama where Julia Wilder and Maggie Bozeman, who were at SCLC and NAACP in Pickens County, used the absentee ballots to bring political power to Black folks in that county. They were charged with voter fraud and thrown in prison. Then you had um, Jeff Sessions going after the Marion Three, also because they had used absentee ballots as a way to... Um, bring about black political power in Perry County. You also had Brian Kemp um, who was at the time secretary of state in Georgia, who went after the Quitman 10 plus two Um, Because they used absentee ballots. And you have pictures of them in their orange traveling jumpsuits as a way, again, to terrorize and terrify the Black community. You use absentee ballots, the state is coming after you. Then you had, and I love, extreme partisan gerrymandering. What extreme partisan gerrymandering does is it allows the politicians to choose their electorate instead of the electorate choosing their politicians. It helps dilute the the power of those who live in the cities and it provides disproportionate power and disproportionate representation to generally white counties and sparsely uh, populated counties. And so you get these really weirdly drawn districts um, that you have the snake on the lake um, in in Ohio. You have the Glock in Texas. Um, You've got the wounded Donald Duck one in Ohio as well. So you've got these weirdly drawn districts that are designed to, to dissipate the power of black voters. Then you had coming after Shelby, you've got the the massive rise of voter ID. You had a couple of come through in the mid 2000s, but it was after Shelby where these things really took off. And the way voter ID works is that it allows these legislators to choose the kinds of IDs that you need in order to access the ballot box. And the, the way that these IDs are chosen is to privilege those that whites have and to denigrate those that African-Americans and Hispanics all have. You have massive voter roll purges um, and, and one violates the National Voter Registration Act, the motor voter law that says you cannot purge folks because simply because they don't vote regularly. Um, but here you have states like Ohio, um, and, and Georgia that have wiped millions off of the rolls simply because they haven't voted regularly. And you have poll closures, massive poll closures. Um, the, we've got over 1,600 polls that have closed since Shelby County v. Holder. The vast majority of those are in the pre-clearance states from the Voting Rights Act. What we know from the research is that for every 10th of a mile that you move a polling place from the black community, black voter turnout goes down by 0.5%, up to four miles. So if you can move that polling place, say four or five miles away, you can get a 20% drop in black voter turnout. You can turn an election by that. Um, You've also got coming after 2020, (laughs) After 2020. I mean, this is like relentless. Uh, After 2020 here in Georgia, you've got a, a SB 202, which has just been signed into law. It is a twin pincer motion. What the legislation legislatures did was they looked at the ways that black people access the ballot box and went to shut that down. From absentee ballots to eliminating the number of drop boxes um, to early voting to curtail the the days of early voting. And the other part of that that pincer motion was to go after the mechanisms that Georgia, the guardrails that Georgia had in place that would not allow Trump to overturn this election. Um, And so they removed the power of the Secretary of State in certification and they gave this gerrymandered. Uh, legislation, legislature, the power to remove county election boards and appoint their own election czar who could certify the election. So this is what where we are right now. It's not pretty. So the 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 most
1: striking feature of this, of course, the one that I think has just gotten everybody to say, "What the hell is going on?" Is the is the water provision right? So you know you see pictures and your book describes this but the pictures of people standing for hours to vote is so moving i mean like when we see it in third world countries we're like so impressed look at them fighting to vote what we have it in the united states and and it's astonishing. Like some people look at that and they think, well, maybe we should have more polling places or make it easier for people to vote. Other people look at that and say, Oh, the problem here is it's too easy to stand in line because people are giving people water. So we have to make it so you can't give them water. And then that'll solve the problem because they can't stand in line that long. Now I just wonder when you, you know, you're from Georgia. What what are people how do people even? Explain it. Like, what do they think they're doing? Like, what do they think the real principle is that's, uh, that's explaining why Georgia would do something like that?
3: So the, the, the over 70% of the population is against SB202. Wow.
1: Uh,
3: yeah. Wow. I mean, we see it for what it is. Um, and so when you're looking at the, the whole thing about the provision of water and aid, of the polling places closed in Georgia and over 200 have been closed, were in minority and poor communities. And so, and the the data are also clear. Um, In in precincts where African-Americans are 90% of the population, they have to wait over 50 minutes on average to vote. For whites in predominantly white communities, the wait is six minutes. Um, And and so those long lines, we saw 11 hour lines in Cobb County that those are designed to make it much more difficult to want to vote. People cannot stand in line that long. This is this is a way to to create these hurdles and these obstacles to the ballot box. I dare you to stand in line for 11 hours without any sustenance. I dare you. I mean, that's what's going on here. Um, There's no rationale for it. The rationale that they're using is election integrity, but the the language of election integrity was the same language that Mississippi used in 1890 to develop the Mississippi plan with the massive disfranchisement policies of poll tax, that we're here to secure the integrity of our elections and to rid our elections of corruption at the ballot box. So this is the same language. A lot of it's the same playbook. Um, And we know that election integrity, Georgia had three recounts in 2020. They didn't find anything. I think the scholarly term is Jack Diddley. (laughs) They didn't find anything. Um, But by churning the waters, by trying to create this aura of of malfeasance, um, that's what they're hanging this on. And it's, 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 it's a lie. It's just okay. a it's just a lie.
1: Okay, so the great hope here is we've got real reform on the table, HR one and HR four. Um, now, some people say, well, they want the John Lewis bill. Uh, Gee, why don't you help us understand why there isn't a John Lewis bill? There's two John Lewis bills here, right? So, tell, help us understand what the architectural or the maybe philo- philosophical difference between HR one and HR four is.
0: Sure. So so. W- Way to think about this is that you have two different types of mechanisms of trying to deal with what Professor Anderson has just characterized. Um, one is to try to reinstate the framework that the Supreme Court gutted in Shelby County versus Holder, in which the court said it said, it said two things. One, it said that the formula that, that was used, so what the Voting Rights Act did Um, particularly the sections that we're talking about, is it identified the worst offenders. It didn't identify all the bad offenders, especially in 1965. It identified the worst of them. And it said, "Okay, um, given your history of discrimination, you have you can't pass. We're going to freeze into place your current voting laws and you can't pass any new ones without pre-clearing it first with federal officials, either the, the attorney general or the United States Court for the District of Columbia. One of those two or both. Um, and what the court said is that covered the coverage formula, the formula that identified the, the jurisdictions of the history of discrimination um, was outdated and that the nature of racial discrimination in 2013 was different from 1965. And that the era, what, what my co-author Lisa and I call the era of big discrimination is over. Um, And so the normal constitutional mechanism can handle the problem of racial discrimination. So what H.R. 4 tries to do is to reinstate that process by saying, if you are a jurisdiction that has discriminated, uh, that has had a set amount, 10 or more violations over 25 years, you have to pre-clear your voting laws and practices, and it identifies what sets of practices and laws that they have to pre-clear. So that's, mecha- that's, one, that's one version of trying to address, and that's H.R. 4. The other one is H.R. 1, which is a very omnibus, comprehensive, um, really voting rights act. Um, statute that on the voting rights portion of it essentially does addresses a number of different things. So it provides, um, for example, that voting is a fundamental and constitutional right. It makes, it says that the right needs to be accessible. And it has a number of a plethora of important features. Um, So it shifts the burden of voting from individuals to the government, automatic voter registration, same-day registration. It centralizes aspects of election administration in practice um, and standardizes those aspects, provides for early voting, vote by mail. um, It limits state discretion. So it identifies a number of best practices, and it says, okay, for federal elections, you, the states, have to implement those best practices, like same-day registration or automatic registration um, or vote by mail, Right, limiting the types of things that George, as Professor Anderson just described, that Georgia is trying to do right now, or that Iowa might 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 be trying to do. So we have two different ways of getting at the problem. You could you really could think of them as the as both as the John Lewis Act, because what 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 they're trying to do, especially HR1, is to um make sure that voting is regarded as a fundamental right that belongs to the citizen and then shifts the burden away from the individual to the government and then limits the state, the state's discretion so that you're not trying to figure out which states are going to misbehave and then retroactively try to address the problems of misbehavior. What H.R. 4 tries to do is it tries to identify um, those states and where they're engaged in racial discrimination, then reinstate the preclearance process. There are benefits and drawbacks to both approaches. The theory is to try to get them both through Congress. They face different constitutional hurdles, but that's the legislative package that that we're facing currently.
1: Okay, so one really important point to be clear about is that HR1 is going to address federal elections and H.R. 4 would change the law for all elections, right? So it's a broader uh, change. But is that, do you think that's an important difference? Do you think changing the federal elections will in effect change the rules for the state elections as well?
0: Yeah, so, so H.R. 4 focuses on racial discrimination, right? So racial discrimination with respect to all elections. H.R. 1 focuses on Federal elections, so whatever. So it's broader, and 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 in that in that sense. Um, and so um, the theory, and, not, and we haven't even talked about the campaign finance provisions, right? Sort of like all of the other stuff. But leave just focusing on just the voting rights aspects of it. You could think of HR one as encompassing all the worries that we also have for HR four, because the mechanisms that this, that the states would use. Um, for engaging in racial discrimination are the ones that are limited in HR1 right so you it, using registration as a mechanism of racial discrimination using polling places as a mechanism of, of racial discrimination using um, um, absentee balloting as a right all of those things would also be limited by HR1
1: and so from the constitutional perspective I, and we've talked about this before but um. Is it? It's a different standard that would measure HR one from HR four, right? Or at least it could be. I mean, they're both justified under the Fourteenth and Fifteenth Amendments, uh, um, but HR one has a clearer additional justification, right? So, is there a reason to be more optimistic, or at least be optimistic? This is why a number of questions in the in the chat have pressed this. Is there a reason to be optimistic that the Supreme Court just won't gut whatever would happen from HR one?
0: Right. So here's the problem. Here's the way to think about H.R. 4. So the the worry with H.R. 4 is that a number of justices on the court are already leery um, and they've expressed their views on whenever either the states or Congress tries to address the problem of racial discrimination. Uh, and so if you take Roberts's opinion in Shelby County very seriously, that really what we're looking for, what the court would be looking for, is a type of systematic racial discrimination that is akin to 1965. Right, or nineteen sixty four. So if if Roberts is serious about that, then the then HR forced constitutionality. Um, it will be severely undermined. Right. That is uh, that the court that the probability the court will find HR4 constitutional is extremely low. All right. Now we know that Congress has has power under the Elections Clause under the Guarantee Clause under the Fourteenth Amendment to address uh, problems and issues with federal elections. So the probability then that HR1 will survive constitutional scrutiny is much higher than the the probably that um, H.R. 4 will survive con- constitutional scru- scrutiny. Now, it might be the case that the court will do whatever it wants to do, and so, like, all bets are off. But if we're, if we're simply going by past precedents, then H.R. 1 has a higher likelihood of passing constitutional muster under this current court than H.R. 4.
1: Okay, so both are incredibly important. Um, but it's easier for the court to do damage with H.R. 4 Given the jurisprudence, than with HR uh, one. Okay, so I'm going to bring in some of the questions. We've got a lot of really great questions coming in, um, and I want to. the First one's really for you, Carol. And I, I, I kind of got from you two very different reads about how you um, are thinking about this. One very optimistic, and one just very angry. Um, so, um, I want to. I want to emphasize. they the can't other- get angry. You know that. <laughs> I want, to, um, uh, I want to see whether you're optimistic or if you are optimistic, why should we be optimistic here? Like, What is the reason why there's a shot now when you know, obviously this is something people have been fighting, John Lewis had been fighting
3: for for so many years and couldn't get it achieved before? You know, so why be optimistic now that we can get this through? Um, I think part of it is that we have an incredible array of organizations Um, that have been mobilizing here in Georgia for at least for over a decade. I mean, this is why you saw that massive voter turnout in 2020. Um, And this is why you saw a 92% Black voter turnout rate from the uh, general election to the runoff election in 2021, 92%. That kind of engagement cannot be denied. Um, and there are incredible litigators behind this too. Um, and, and a strategy that is putting pressure on multiple points on this government to adhere to the basic right to vote. Um, and so that's where my optimism comes from, um, is that we have always fought. We have always fought. Um, and we will continue to fight, um, And we are strong, we are tough, we are smart. Um, And we are relentless because we know that our lives are on the line. There's something about fighting when you know your life is on the line. And that's what this is. That's why folks were standing in line for 11 hours to vote because they're like, "Uh uh-uh, I know that if I don't cast this ballot, um, this might be the difference maker. And whether I get to be here next year or not. People are very cognizant of what the power to vote means. Okay, so so this
1: reform obviously would make it easier for majoritarian democracy to work um, because you wouldn't have states given or allowed the power to suppress the majority vote, which is what's happening with these laws and with gerrymandering. The, The irony, of course, with our system is that to get this law passed Congress, you need a supermajority. Um, basically, the minority has the power to block the majority from assuring that the majority actually matters in America. So this is filibuster reform. So um, it, it seems pretty unlikely if we need sixty votes that we're going to get sixty votes to pass either HR one or HR four. Gee, why don't you help us think about? what what might be done in the filibuster space to allow this to to pass through the senate um even without imagining the filibuster abolished
0: sure so a couple things one i mean so you're right so a couple two things are really interesting about american democracy right is sort of the historical balance between uh, majoritarian and anti-majoritarian right so when you look at the senate um, you have to think about that structurally as anti-majoritarian. And you also look at some of the Senate rules, and you have to think about that structurally also as anti-majoritarian. So we have this divide. In the same way that we have this divide between the right to vote and voting as a privilege, we have this divide also between a system that is majoritarian and a system that is that also mixes um, anti-majoritarian frames. Um, and so now, fundamentally, the question that we're going to have to, to think about. Are to what extent this is something that you're seeing, and this goes back to a point that Professor Anderson made. You are seeing that the provisions of HR one um, and the provisions of HR four, but here the provisions of HR one are also broadly popular. Um, and the question that the that the demo, our democracy has to think about is to what extent then can we uh, put pressure on our senators um, to um, to stand and defend these you know, strongly egalitarian, democratizing uh, provisions. So even some, right, this is the, the story from the Koch brothers that came out from the New Yorker today, um, that broadly speaking, even among conservatives, This conception of political equality, of the right of citizens to participate, that resonates within American democracy. And the question then becomes using democratic politics to assure that our political leaders are not aggregating and holding power for themselves, but are listening to the people. And right, so the types of political pressure that we are now starting to uh, put on on our political leaders and and the, and the political process that make us optimistic is is a place that we need to continue to go.
1: So so cu- so the Senate has the power to respond to that pressure, right? It can change its filibuster rule. It can exempt certain subjects, like it exempts budget matters from the filibuster rule it could change the filibuster rule. So people actually have to get up and speak. I mean, the most outrageous thing is it's justified because it's to facilitate deliberation, but you don't actually have to say anything to invoke it. You can just invoke it and that's it. It's over. So you could require them to stand up and speech. The talking filibuster. Yeah. Which, you know, it's been not very pretty over our history, the things that have been said under that talking filibuster, but at least they'd have to work for it. I'm um, Uh, my my colleague, Matt Stevenson, and uh, two of his uh, colleagues have just published this really interesting reform that says, change the filibuster so the votes, the filibuster can be ended if you get a majority of senators representing a majority of the country. So that it's majoritarian on both sides, like 51 senators who happen to represent more voters than the other side. And then you know that, that a majority has spoken and we're gonna at least get onto a vote. So these are all changes that could happen short of saying there is no filibuster anymore. Although my own view is there should just be no filibuster anymore. But but Carol, I know um, you know there are a lot of people who are saying, look, the most pressing problem is voting rights. That's the thing we got to worry about. Let's just focus on that. Why should we also be focusing on money in politics or gerrymandering? Why don't we just get the John Lewis, both John Lewis bills passed and Say that's that's pretty pretty good for government work at least
3: in one session. I think we need both. Um, one because we see right now that we are in an era where we ha- we don't have pre-clearance, which is what the Voting Rights Act provided, where you had to get the okay. Um, and so we see what happens without pre-clearance, where these states have gone hog wild. But we also need to have the standards about what clean, clear. Free and fair elections look like. Um, and that, and we need to remove d- dark money out of these elections. Um, uh, Congressman Mondair Jones said it beautifully: where um, money is driving this, where you have a handful of millionaires and billionaires who are determining what our policies look like. Um, And this is why you have these massive disparities between what the public wants and the policies that get implemented. Um, If we're going to have a truly vibrant, multiracial, multiethnic, multireligious democracy, we have to get dark money out of it. And we have to have the standards about what federal elections must have. And we have to have, because we know folks are going to act a fool. Again, another scholarly term, but we have a history of seeing this. Um, So the history of you got the 15th Amendment that says thou shalt not discriminate and you get Mississippi and Alabama and and Georgia going, yeah, we will. We're just not going to say race. We're going to use the. Um, proxies for race and make those proxies the access to the ballot box. So we have to have pre-clearance in order to stop this stuff before it does damage to an election by by cauterizing and shearing off key elements of the electorate.
1: Yeah, and I think that you know, building on something Guy just said, um, and endorsing what you've just said, you know, you said we need both, but I think what you were really saying is we need HR one in its entirety and HR4. And the reason we need all of that um, on the HR1 side is is that uh, different representatives are gonna have different issues that their constituents will really care about. And the one thing that's striking when you see the Koch brothers worrying about the fact that conservatives at the same level as uh, uh, non-conservatives or progressives look at this system and say, it's a corrupted system and we've got to end the influence of billionaires inside that system, when they look at it and they say, oh my gosh, we're screwed because if our base believes this too, then they've got a really important fight. That's really important because there are many members of Congress, you know, in a principled way, they should say voting rights is the thing I really care about, but their own constituents are not going to be as animated by voting rights because maybe they don't have an issue with voting rights in their state. But they do have an issue with money in politics. I mean, think of Iowa, which just had the second most expensive contested race for Senate. And 75% of that money came from out of state. People in Iowa might not be so worried. They should be, but might not be be so worried about voting rights. But they are extremely frustrated with this corrupted system for funding elections. And and they could be brought along to the idea that we got to pass HR one to address the problem we think is really critical, and then everybody could get the problem they think is really critical and have the majority necessary to pass it. Um, um, what if they don't? I mean, Gee and Carol both. I'd love to see your sense of this. I mean, I, I you know my brand is to be deeply pessimistic and dark. That's why it's a black <laughs> background here. Um, so I, I don't want to jinx it but like what happens if we fail here what happens if we don't get um these things passed
0: so i think i'm relatively an optimist here because first you have to look at the progression of voting rights and um and how seriously we've been we started taking political participation including the question of money and politics which you know you've done your work has done a great job of putting on the table uh, Professor Anderson's work has done a, great, done a great job of putting the voting rights questions on the table. When you look at where we were at the dawn of this republic, Right? And, the, and the way that we thought about political participation and the way that we thought about racial equality, and you look at where we were in 1965, and you look at where we were when we were talking dealing with Watergate, and you look at now the debate that we're having today. Right, So maybe we fail today with getting these, these um, bills through and getting them enacted as law, um, but that also sets the stage for four years, five years down the road. So the Civil Rights Act of 1957 set the stage for the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965, right? So even though um, the prior uh, legislation were either watered down or some of them were filibustered, but they set the stage. And so it's not linear progression, right? It's not sort of this Whig-ish history. However, Um, We are, um, by putting these questions on the table, by pushing for them hard now, by making the arguments about voting equality, by making the arguments about political participation, about the relationship between money and and policy, and speaking to the American people who, whether they're in the North or in the South, whether they're white or black, whether they're Republicans or or, or, or Democrats, but who understand at the core that these questions are about them um, we are moving the ball forward, even if it doesn't result in immediate legislative uh, victory, though, though I think we are as close as we have ever been. So I'm still optimistic on the short-term goal, but even more optimistic on the long-term goal.
1: Carol, what happens if we fail?
3: I foresee um, a really dark period for us. Um, because of the incredible fear of the the increasing diversity of the United States. Um, These states are responding to a massively diversifying electorate. Um, And how do we maintain power in the hands of a few and, and keep that electorate away from the resources of this incredible nation, of our states, and and so I, I would see them doubling down on that. I mean, he, again, here in Georgia, where you would remove the, the power of the secretary of state who is a Republican um, because he would not find eleven thousand and five hundred and ninety votes that Trump needed to, to flip the electoral college here in the state. But I think that. As Professor Charles has laid out. One of the things that happens in these, these dark moments is that the narratives are shifting and changing in this society about the power of the vote, about um, the pres- how precious American democracy is. The issue of American exceptionalism and that, oh, it can't happen here, that has been deeply eroded over the past four years. And so folks are really thinking through the, the insurrection at the Capitol on January 6th, That had people really thinking through, oh, this can happen here. And this means this is a democracy we have to fight for. And so I think that the narratives are changing enough and the mobilization is there that if, God forbid, this Congress cannot do what must be done, I see incredible, intensified mobilization to see to it that it will happen. Um, that's what I see happening. Yeah. I mean, I agree with the mobilization. I
1: guess what I'm fearful of is what are the means, if we fail this time, to making that energy matter? Because if the 253 bills that are being considered in the states to effectively suppress the votes are not overridden by H.R. 1, when if the states have the power to partisan gerrymander after the 2020 census um, to increase the Republican presence in Congress. The New York Times says that they could win Congress simply by the changes through gerrymandering that will be affected by this redistricting. Um, if states begin to adopt this, what we could call faithless legislature law uh, laws, which basically say, if we don't like what the voters do, then we can just overturn it. Then we're gonna face in 2023, A democracy where it's clear the minority is in power even though the minority has gotten fewer votes and then what do we do like how do we fight back against that now in other democracies they'd go to courts but our court has given up it does not resist minoritarianism in fact it entrenches minoritarianism with money in politics like the citizens united and buckley versus vallejo is all about powerful minorities get to exert their power through money and there's nothing the Constitution says allows you to do about that. So, so I really fear we're going to be in this position where this energy that you've described and you've helped motivate, and, you know, we've all been in this fight for a long time, is going to be present. But the opportunity to actually see a democracy that represents
3: us will have been taken away. And, you know, where is the insurrection then? Well, and, see, and this is why I think that it is absolutely essential that right now, we put enormous pressure on the Senate um, to implement this uh, because this is a dance we really don't want to have to do. And so, and this Senate has the ability to pass HR one um, and to begin to think about, you know, I'll just say it, if Joe Manchin really likes his power. Joe Manchin must not want the filibuster because if, if HR 1 doesn't go through, Joe Manchin is not going to be in the majority in the Senate. <laughs> um, so, to even think about it in terms of vested self interest, HR 1 is in this Senate's vested self interest. They must move on this. Um, okay. Our yes. democracy requires it. Yeah. If All I can right. make just one point,
0: though, I mean, I, I hear you, Professor Lessig, um, and I worry in the, in the way that you're articulating, but but there are also a couple of things to think about. While we're seeing many states um, undermine and limit um, democracy, we're also seeing... Other states, right? So, like, if you look at what's happened in New York, if you look at what's happening in, in Virginia, so we're also in some of the things that HR one does. It borrows from what the many states have already done, right? Mm-hmm. So we have we have countervailing forces, um, right? And and it's also good to also point out some of the positives that are happening at the state level. The other thing that I found really interesting, and and Professor Anderson's state of Georgia, is that when you tell people, when one party tells people that the election is rigged and not to believe in democracy, people tend then to just stay home. And when, when your side stays home, you lose elections now. Right. You're going to you, you're going to have to engage in even greater gerrymandering and vote rigging. Um, but that also comes at a cost. Um, right. And so um, and so I also think that part of there's a way in which a democracy fights back. Uh, Social scientists have had a hard time finding the effects of voter IDs, in part because when when you try to make it harder, especially for Black communities to vote, people then redouble their efforts. They fight back. And so what we need to urge voters to do is not to Um, be discouraged with the attempts to gerrymander the democracy, but to continue to fight back and to exact a political cost um, when folks are trying to undermine the right to vote and equal political participation with respect to money and politics, uh, because that political cost then may be the only way of making sure that people do the right thing thing. Instead of fighting on turnout, let's fight on policy. Happy to fight there, but let's not fight on turnout.
1: I completely agree with that. Um, you know, And we're going to fight no matter what. And if we don't get this passed, is that clear that H.R. 1 on its own would take care of the money, the, the water issue in Georgia? I think they can still ban water. But if that is still in law, I'm going to be down there with you, Carol, handing out water to every single voter i can i think we've got to get a million person march to georgia to hand out water just to show the ridiculousness of this kind of regulation let's unpack a little bit and i want to go a little bit over if we can just to, uh, to, to 710 and if you if there are more questions please put them in um, adam is i um, calling them they've uh, got a bunch of people pushing on um, understanding a little bit more the way the money in politics part works. Um, And so HR1 has two interesting changes, um, uh, both for presidential campaigns and also for congressional campaigns. For the first time in American history, congressional candidates could fund their campaigns using small dollar contributions because those contributions are matched six to one. So if you get a hundred dollars, the government gives you $600. It gets that money from fines and, Penalties imposed against lobbyists and corporations who violated the law. So it's not tax money, it's the fine money that's being used to do this. Um, but that money then allows the $100 to turn into $700. Um, and so, uh, as long as you agree to take no more than $1,000 from any individual, this gives you the ability to fund your campaigns with small contributions. That's going to make it easier for people who don't have large Rolodexes to fund their campaigns, which means typically. You know, the people with large Rolodexes are people like me, lawyers, white lawyers at law firms who have lots of people we can call. But if you're uh, blue collar or if you're um, a a woman who's not worked in the professional fields, this is not easy for you. A person of color, this is not easy for you. This would change that fundamentally. There's another part of it, though, that's been more controversial. I've been beaten up because I've tried to defend this. Um, And that's the presidential public funding system. So this is changing the presidential public funding system. And it's basically replacing the existing system, which gives candidates who run for president if they opt into it, matching funds during the primary. And then in the general election, they get a certain amount of money depending on whether it's a majority party or a minority party, and then um, allocation is a function of what happened in the last election. This system replaces that. And um, uh, it increases the um, amount of money you're going to have to raise. Instead of raising $5,000 in 20 states, you're going to have to raise $25,000 in 20 states to qualify. So people from the Green Party have been very frustrated that this would make it harder for them to compete. Um, and, uh, and people in the Green Party are frustrated with the whole idea of matching funds because they think matching funds might exacerbate the difference in funding for any particular candidate. So, I wonder when you hear that, whether you think that's a reason to resist what we're doing in HR1 or whether you think these concerns um, on balance are overcome by what you think is the good in HR1. I didn't pick somebody to answer that question because I didn't tee it up to you before. But is there, Carol or
3: Guy, do you have a sense of that? Well, it just, it, what, what I hear, what I'm, it seems to me, that um, being able to raise twenty five thousand dollars in the state is is a is an adequate threshold. Um, and and I know we've got to get the dark money out of presidential elections out of our elections period um, because of the damage that this dark money has done. That citizens United decision um, saying that this was violating, uh, big donor corporations, uh, right to free speech. <laughs> just so angry, okay, I got it. Yeah, yeah this is me not angry. Um, is, is, is just, uh, it has done damage. Um, it is why we don't have um, um, policies, good policies on climate change. It's why we don't have really good policies on um, semi-automatic weapons. It's why we don't have really good policies. Period. Um, it's it's because of this dark money driving it, and and the whole of HR one is so solid and so good um, that to start trying to to move it around like a Jenga um, and to have the doggone thing collapse is is is. I find untenable, given what we're up against, given what the stakes are.
0: So I I agree. What I would say to my sisters and brothers who are concerned about third-party rights are that we are at a state in American politics. The closer that we get to thinking about political equality the closer that we get to thinking about the rights of individuals and the role of money in politics, the closer we also get to thinking about um, addressing the party's duopoly, and that if we don't make progress on the questions that are raised on HR1, we're not also not going to make progress on these other questions. So we're finally talking about ranked choice voting, right? I mean, just think about where we are in American politics today, that we're actually taking seriously and talking about things like ranked choice voting. Part of it is the function of the fact that we're taking very seriously Um, rights of political participation. We're trying to represent more broadly the full political spectrum instead of the middle of the political spectrum, right? We're taking very seriously majoritarianism as well as rights of minorities. Um, And so if we don't make progress on those, then we're also not going to make progress on, on, on that other front. And so we have to think um, much more holistically about where it is that we're going and how to advance the ball, sometimes incrementally, um, but but advancing the ball because that will take, I will also take care of uh, making sure that the full political spectrum is represented because the way that our American systems are addressed, there are, other types of fundamental changes that, we'll need, that we will need to make, right? Sort of think about single member districting as, as an example, right? If we want to um, fully represent the full political spectrum and not just the duopoly and particularly the middle of, of the political spectrum. A
1: critical point. I mean, you know, HR one is incredibly important. It, it's got to be passed. But it's not like we're all going to be out of a job. I mean, there's a whole bunch of other things we're going to have to start talking about after we get this one. Um, and I deeply support the importance of third parties or more parties. I think that's one really important balance to the kind of du- duopoly, the polarized political party we've got right now. So I think we've got to solve that problem, but we've got to solve it um, we're going to solve it after we've solved this really fundamental problem. Um, sometimes people talk about this issue. We saw this question really nicely put. Sometimes people talk about this issue, H.R. 1, as involving civil rights, but then also involving money in politics and involving gerrymandering reform. Do you think money in politics and gerrymandering reform are civil rights too? Um, or do you think that, you know, there's some better rights here to worry about and some lesser rights to
3: I think that this is about um, the rights of American democracy to actually thrive. Um, That's what HR1 is really about. That's the right that we're fighting for here. Um, And and the ways, then, looking at the ways that a thriving democracy has been systematically undermined is what HR1 is going after. Um, so the power of, of having independent redistricting commissions, um, so that you don't get these crazy maps that provide outsized power to those, um, um, where you don't get one person, one vote, um, that, 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 um, landmark decision, um, in, in 1962, I believe it was in the Baker decision, um, where you don't have, um, um, Uh, states trying to figure out how do we limit access to the ballot box by cutting early voting um, when you know you've got a working class population um, that can't get off um, on that Tuesday and get there from where they work to where they they have to to live um, by five o'clock. So by having this bill that is going after all of the ways that American democracy has been undermined and the ways that we can strengthen it, that's the right that we're talking about here. Mm -hmm. Is it all a civil right, Guy?
0: Yeah, I mean, I can undermine your right to vote by denying it, by diluting it, by suppressing it, and by overpowering it, Mm -hmm. right? That is, I can say you don't get to vote. Well, you do get to vote, but I'm going to gerrymander and make sure that you don't get much of a voice. Well, all right, fine. I'm not going to gerrymander it, but I'm going to send bad information. So that way you don't really are not motivated to come. Oh, sure, you get to come, but you know who's going to write the laws? Um, All of those rich people are going to write the laws. And when they write the laws, guess whose interests they're going to take into account? Um, Not the things that you want, um, right? So yeah, you have a right to vote, right? You can vote, but you don't get any of the, of your public policy preferences, or you get very little of them, um, right? So the things that you actually really care about, the civil rights questions or the issues that you care about, none of those will be represented in the political process. So if we, if that's the system that we have, um, then making distinctions among them, right, making distinctions among vote denial, right, those are academic distinctions, but for the, for the voter, what that person actually cares about, the reason why they show up at the polls is they want the types of public policy that that they support i mean if they don't get that then um then really what's the point um right so as academics we care about vote denial we care about vote suppression we care about vote dilution we care about right all of those things Um, but for for the democracy what matters is who gets what really well
3: put really well put in the 2017 senatorial runoff election in alabama um Alabama had deployed every method of voter suppression against that black population. And what the grassroots organizers did was to work through every one of those hurdles and talking with the people about what they wanted for their lives um, and the way that public policy would affect what they wanted for their lives. That's what is the lifeblood of American democracy and when we have stuff out there messing up that lifeblood, then we've got to fix it. And fight for
1: it. And I mean, that's really the inspirational message here, right? that people see it, even Republicans see it, Um, at least voters. And if we can find a way to inspire them to force the Senate to do something about it, we'll actually have achieved it. Something that when I got into this fight 15 years ago, I never would have imagined. We would have something like HR one on the table that we were within shot of achieving. It's an extraordinary moment. Um, so, as a closing, um, I'd love you to give like one or two minutes that says, what should people be doing now? What could they do to make sure that we succeed in this, the most important next step that democracy should take?
3: Carol. Um, I believe it is talking with our friends and our families about the importance of HR one. And then calling and writing our our senators, um, writing op-eds, getting the word out about how essential this is, changing the power of the narrative to compel this to be um, passed, this incredible legislation to be passed.
0: I can't improve upon that. I can only ditto what Professor Anderson has said.
3: I'm sure uh, you
1: could, but I appreciate that you have a sense of our time. (laughs) But um, I am so grateful to both of you uh, for joining us, and uh, grateful again to the co-sponsors that made this possible that brought so many people here. Um, Again, you can sign up at equalcitizens.us to get the substack that will keep you up to date on everything that's happening to get this passed. Um, and, uh, And I'm really, really hopeful that we will have a chance to celebrate in person when this does pass and we've solved the corona, uh, the COVID uh, (laughs) uh, uh, crisis as well. But thank you so much, Guy and Carol, for joining us tonight. Thank you everybody for your questions and participating. And um, let's move to passing S1 and getting Joe Biden to sign. Thank you and good night, everybody. Thank you. This is Larry Lessig. Thank you so much. For tuning in in the podcast way One to Zen to this episode of Another Way. We'll continue next week with more depth I want on the question of how we make this democracy work better. The issue I want to talk about with a friend and um, someone who is, a hero to many, and certainly to me, Jimmy Wales, the founder of Wikipedia. The issue I want to talk about is, how can a media organization position itself to be able to provide information that all of us can rely on and trust? Now, you might ask, why does the founder of Wikipedia have anything to say about that? And the reason is, as you'll Understand as we unpack the story of Wikipedia, that Wikipedia itself at its birth needed to struggle with this question directly. How could it craft an information source that people would come to view as not partisan or biased, but as doing the best it can to report information in a way that makes it accessible and universally available? And what I think, we haven't had this conversation yet, but what I think. That at the end of that conversation, we'll begin to have a sense of what's wrong with our media right now. And if not a clear way to get to a media we could trust again, at least a clear sense of just what's at stake. So that's a lot to promise, especially since I haven't had this conversation with Jimmy yet. But uh, stay tuned for the next episode of this podcast Another Way. These podcasts are produced, as you've heard, by Equal Citizens. You can find us on the web at equalcitizens.us and this podcast at equalcitizens.us slash anotherway. You can find a box there, a form there to give us your feedback and your ideas. This idea Uh, of talking about the media has been pushed to me in my email inbox, not directly from that form, by a number of people, and so that's why I want to take this turn. These podcasts are also available everywhere. Podcasts are available. We're not yet great enough to be exclusive with anyone. Um, Though, if you got an idea for, you know, tons of money for the reform movement, uh, we'd be happy to hear it. Not really, okay, but that's just, you know, sad effort and a joke. I'm sorry. Okay, this is Larry Lessig. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for the next episode.